From Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to talk about one of the multitude of horror-centric distributors that popped up in the 70s and 80s, rode the grindhouse circuit as long as they could, and disappeared without a trace, only remembered by true gore aficionados and me. Motion Picture Marketing, or MPM for short. MPM was founded by a gentleman named John Chambliss in 1978, and amongst his first hires was Lon J. Kerr in January 1979. Kerr had spent years in advertising, first starting with the once-powerful ad agency Young and Rubicon, who you might remember from frequent mentions on Mad Men, before becoming a publicity manager at 20th Century Fox. After a stint as the national public relations manager for Tom Laughlin's Billy Jack Enterprises, Kerr would come to MPM to help ride the then-popular wave of sexy comedies and bloody horror films that would get their starts, often in the grindhouse theaters of New York's 42nd Street, before heading out to the theaters and drive-ins around the country, often in regional releases. The earliest movies MPM would release were often films that had already come out and failed years before given new titles and new key art, and sent out again as if they were something new. One example would be the 1975 sex comedy The Swing and Barmaids, directed by legendary B-movie director Gus Traconis and written by Charles B. Griffith, the writer of such seminal drive-in movies as Not of This Earth, A Bucket of Blood, The Little Shop of Horrors, and Death Race 2000. In the film, three waitresses in Los Angeles are stalked by a serial killer that has committed a series of similar grisly murders in Chicago and Miami. Released by Premier Releasing Organization in July of 1975, the film was a minor hit. MPM would end up buying the distribution rights to this film and several others when Premier Releasing filed for bankruptcy. Kerr would devise a new ad campaign for it, trying to sell it as a sexy comedy, retitling it Eager Beavers, and creating a new key art for the film that featured three barely clad women sitting atop a leather couch while a man, who just happened to be Long Care himself, is lying possibly dead on the carpet, with a couple of pairs of panties and a copy of The Joy of Sex also featured in the photo. The film would make its way around the United States throughout the second half of 1980, often paired with another MPM film, Vampire Playgirls, which itself was originally a 1971 Italian horror film called The Devil's Nightmare, which was also made up to look like a sexy comedy, and again with three barely clad women, this time sitting atop a coffin. But sometimes vampire girls would cycle around the country with another MPM movie, Grave Desires, which itself was originally released in 1968 under the title Brides of Blood. Before Grave Desires was sent out to support vampire girls, it would be paired with yet another MPM movie called Cemetery Girls, itself originally a 1973 film called Count Dracula's Great Love. But Greenhouse fans and drive-in aficionados didn't care. These retreaded movies would earn millions for both theaters and MPM, which would allow the company to start picking up and sometimes even financing new films. On this episode, we're going to shy away from the repackaged movies from the 1960s and 1970s that had at least one theatrical release before MPM bought them, and focus on the handful of newer titles that they would gift to the world. We begin with a film that was not only not MPM's first repackaged movie, but it was also their first production, Final Exam. 
In the spring of 1980, producer Myron Meisel and his financial partners came up with what they felt was a game plan for the perfect horror movie release. First, find a storyline that hadn't been done yet. Vampires and zombies were done to death, pun fully intended. Haunted houses and insane asylums were passé. Quote-unquote holidays had already become the new go-to for horror. But you know what hadn't been done yet? A psycho terrorizing college students during exam week. Next, they needed a director. They needed a script and they needed a location to shoot. And they find all three in Shelby, North Carolina. Actor and producer Earl Owensby, who we covered somewhat in our 3D craze of the 1980s episode in 2022, had purchased a 200-acre plot of land in the early 1970s, hoping to make it the center of a new film and television production community, a new Hollywood for the region. Owensby would write, produce, and star in his movies, shooting them at his own studio and using the profits to make more movies and to expand the studio space. Two of the films Owensby would make at his studios, 1976's Dark Sunday and 1977's Death Driver, were directed by Jimmy Houston, no relation to John or Angelica or any of those Houstons. Jimmy just quote-unquote happened to be at the Owensby studio when Meisel and his team were touring the facility, even though Houston had not made a movie in three years. But Meisel liked what he heard from Owensby in Houston, and Houston was hired not only to direct, but also to write the script, despite not having ever written a screenplay before. The next step in the plan was to get the film made and completed in time to open in theaters in February of 1981. It was decided to start shooting in mid-July 1980 for six weeks, which would give them six months for post-production to meet their self-imposed deadline. But why February 1981? Well, because advertising costs are higher in the summer months and during the Thanksgiving-Christmas holiday season. The summer movie season, especially 1981, was already starting to look crowded, and to this point in film history, no one had successfully released a horror movie during the holiday season. MPM, having shown its ability to milk every last drop of blood from a stone, made an offer to the producers to not only release the film into theaters, but also help finance it which was an extra bonus the producers did not get from any other distributor. But on the way to production start date, a major roadblock would pop up, which would ironically save the production even more money. In May of 1980, the two major labor unions representing actors in Hollywood, the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, started negotiations with the then Association of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, over a new contract that was set to expire at the end of June. The main point of contention was how actors were going to get paid for their work when shown on the myriad of new technologies at the time, including videotapes, cable, and laser discs. Does any of this sound familiar and topical? After nearly two months of fruitless negotiations, the Screen Actors Guild announced on July 10th that they had set a strike deadline of July 21st. The week final exam was supposed to begin production. With the threat of both SAG and AFTRA, separate unions at the time, being on strike, the producers would have to cast non-union actors in the film. Thus, the vast majority of the cast would either come from Actors' Equity, the union that represented stage actors on the East Coast, including Broadway and Off-Broadway, or newcomers that had never appeared on stage, on television, or in movies, and thus were not a part of any guild or union. 
there were a few after-members in the cast using pseudonyms in order to work. Because, seriously, what guild is going to be checking film sets in Shelby, North Carolina, a town of 15,000 people an hour west of Charlotte, in late summer when it's hitting 90 degrees on a near-daily basis to see if guild members are crossing picket lines? With their cast of mostly unknowns, the $363,000 film would begin its five-week shoot on September 15, 1980, finishing up three days before Halloween, leaving the film only four months to make that self-imposed February 1981 release deadline. The filmmakers would meet the deadline, but just barely. MPM would open final exam in one theater at the Contiki in Dayton, Ohio, one theater the Yorktown in Minneapolis, and one theater, the Namioki in St. Louis, on Friday, February 27th. The film would earn $7,000 in Minneapolis, $4,500 in Dayton, and $3,000 in St. Louis. Not good numbers, and barely better than the fourth and fifth week movies it replaced. But whether it was a planned one-week engagement or, or the film just wasn't picked up for a second week at those theaters, we may never know. But the following Friday, all three theaters would be playing other films. Final exam would open in one theater in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, two in Minneapolis, and four more in St. Louis on March 6th, one each in Indianapolis and Louisville on March 13th, four in Tampa on March 27th, one in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Memphis on April 10th, and it would keep trickling out little by little, second-tier market after second-tier market until June 5th when Final Exam would open in 40 theaters and drive-ins in the Los Angeles area and nearly 100 screens in the Chicago metro area. But by this time, the horror film market was already saturated. Filmways The Burning, Avco Embassy's Dead and Buried, Paramount's The Fan, Columbia's Happy Birthday to Me, Paramount's second installment of the Friday the 13th franchise, and even New Line's re-release of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre had all opened within the previous three weeks, and of those 12 local theaters Variety tracked that week, the film would only gross $28,000. Compare this to The Legend of the Lone Ranger, one of the most notorious flops of the year, which grossed $45,000 from 13 theaters in Los Angeles that weekend, in its third week. In Chicago, the film would gross $260,000 from the 64 theaters tracked that week, which would be nearly double the per-screen average of those theaters in Los Angeles, but would still be flunking by any grading curve. By the following Friday, almost every theater in both markets would be playing other films. MPM wouldn't open the film in New York City at all, and would soon thereafter close out the film with a respectable, but not quite yet profitable, $1.3 million gross. Bert I. Gordon is a name much beloved in the 1970s and 80s sci-fi movie community with films like 1976's The Food of the Gods and 1977's The Empire of the Ants, fondly remembered for being kitschy fun. After the release of Ants, it would take five years for Gordon to get another movie into production, and in true Mr. B.I.G. fashion, it would have a fantastic title, Burned at the Stake. In 1692, Salem, Massachusetts, a young girl accuses several town residents of being witches. Those people are tried and convicted, and you got it, burned at the stake. 288 years later, a young girl living in Salem is accosted by a wax figure in the town's witch museum 
during a school outing. The wax figure has been possessed by a minister from way back when, who believes this young girl is the reincarnation of the young girl who accused his five-year-old daughter of being a witch. Filmed in September and October of 1979, on location in Salem, including the famous House of the Seven Gables, it would take nearly two years for Gordon to get any nibbles on his new movie, despite his last two films being box office successes that found a second life during the early days of cable television. But MPM needed to get another movie out into the market, so they would pick the film up and prep it for an early 1982 release. One of those prep items would be to change the title from the memorable Burned at the Stake to the rather bland and generic The Coming. Like with Final Exam, MPM would start slow with The Coming, opening it on three screens in El Paso, Texas on January 22, 1982, before sending it out onto two screens in Albuquerque on February 19th. But there are no records of the film playing anywhere else in America, or how much it might have made. What little audience the film would find would find it on home video and late-night cable presentations in the years to come. Demon Rage would be MPM's first film with some kind of star power if you consider John Carradine, Britt Eklund, or Lana Wood to be some kind of star. Wood plays Lisa, a woman in an unhappy marriage, who starts to have an affair with a tall, dark, and handsome man who may or may not be a spirit from the other side. The $1.5 million film's director and co-writer, James Polakoff, had written or directed several silly movies over the previous few years with titles like Swim Team and Love and the Midnight Auto Supply. This would be his second stab at the horror genre after 1975's Sunburst, about a couple on vacation who are stalked by a pair of backwater rapists, which today is only known for being one of Robert Englund's earliest film roles. Demon Rage would open in Corpus Christi, Texas and Fresno, California on June 4, 1982, close after two weeks with no reported grosses and pretty much be forgotten about. Another film to come and go without much fanfare was William Fruitt's Funeral Home, which is admittedly a better title than the one the movie was shot under, Rise in the Dark. A young woman arrives at her grandmother's new home, a former funeral home, to help turn it into a quaint little country bed and breakfast. But soon after opening, the guests start to disappear if they don't turn up dead. Funeral Home was one of the plethora of Canadian-made movies in the late 70s and early 80s that took advantage of a favorable tax law that was created to spur movie and television productions to the Great White North. For a low-budget horror film, Funeral Home enjoyed a fairly long seven-week shooting schedule in and around Toronto. And while the movie would open in Canada in October of 1980, it would take more than another year and a half for it to make to American theaters starting with playdates in Bowling Green, Kentucky, Clarksville, Tennessee, Columbia, South Carolina, Nashville, and Rochester, New York on May 28, 1982. The following week, June 4th, it would lose all of its screens in those first three cities, but add new playdates in Appleton and Madison, Wisconsin. And by the following Friday, it would be out of all of its former theaters, but credit to MTM, they didn't quite give up on the film this time. It opened in Cincinnati on July 2nd, in St. Louis on July 9th, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Louisville, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota on July 16th, and Indianapolis on July 23rd. Then they take a short break before giving it another chance in San Francisco on October 17th, 
and Lafayette, Louisiana on October 1st, and Miami on October 15th. But finally, on November 5th, MPM would go all in with a major release in New York City. 56 screens. Despite no opening day ad in the New York Times and stiff post-Halloween competition from Halloween 3, which had opened two weeks earlier, and The Burning, which had also opened on November 5th, Funeral Home would do more than $400,000 in ticket sales, the third best gross in the city after First Blood, and the Michael Palin comedy, The Missionary. And more importantly, we would finally have something resembling a national gross total to date after nearly four months. $708,629. But the following week, Funeral Home and all the other horror titles in the market would get hammered by a new horror movie entering the market. George Romero and Stephen King's Creep Show, which would gross more than $1.2 million in New York City alone its first weekend. Creep Show sucked so much air out of the room that 55 of the 56 screens playing Funeral Home on November 5th had dumped it for Creep Show on November 12th. The only theater that kept it, the Rivoli 2 in Times Square, would only sell 500 tickets over 18 shows the entire weekend, a nearly 66% drop over the previous week. But the prints were made, and they didn't have a lot of wear and tear on them, so MPM would make one final push on the film, opening it on 39 screens in Los Angeles on January 28, 1983. This time, MPM would buy a quarter-page opening day ad in the Los Angeles Times. Variety only tracked seven of those screens, but the film would gross more than $71,000 from those seven screens, which would extrapolate to about $150,000 to $200,000 from all the theaters in the region based on ticket prices and suburban theater audiences. The film also opened on one screen in Phoenix the same day, grossing about $3,500 for the weekend. But again, opening in a major market would give us another clue on a national gross to date. $786,445. And that would be the end of it. MPM would actually release two other movies trying to make Funeral Home happen. The first was The Concrete Jungle, the first in a series of movies that would become MPM's other bread and butter besides horror films, the women in prison genre. Now, what made the women in prison genre so successful in the 70s and 80s? Young, beautiful, scantily clad women getting in cat fights, showering naked, and being humiliated in the most male-gazing way possible. Jill St. John, the former Bond girl from the early 1970s, stars as a cruel and unsympathetic warden at the Correctional Institute for Women in California, who runs a drug and prostitution ring through the jailhouse. A pretty young woman whose boyfriend stashed a good amount of cocaine in her skis is sent to the correctional institution where she works with the deputy director in order to take down the warden and her queen bee prisoner. Shot in an abandoned men's prison in Ventura, California in the late summer of 1981, the concrete jungle would open on 111 screens, including 51 screens in Los Angeles metro area and 10 in and around Detroit, on September 3, 1982 grossing a decent $547,000. For some reason, MPM didn't report second-week grosses, but in its third week, its screen count was down to 48, including several new playdates in Phoenix and Tucson, but with a fairly decent $192,000 weekend gross, which is only about 20% off its first-week numbers on a per-screen average. 
And in three weeks, the film had already grossed nearly a million and a half dollars. In its fourth week of release, the film would add 40 screens in Chicago and another $110,000 in the till. By Chicago first, the film had opened in Cincinnati, in Honolulu, Reno, and the San Francisco Bay Area, and the following week they would add playdates in Indianapolis and Louisville. But the biggest push would come on October 15th, when the concrete jungle would arrive on 97 screens in the New York City metro area. The reviews, the few outlets that bothered to review it, that is, were extremely atrocious, but when were bad reviews ever going to stop New Yorkers from eating this stuff up? The Concrete Jungle would be the number one film for the weekend in the Big Apple, selling $636,000 worth of tickets. And after six weeks in theaters, the film would have already grossed $4.5 million. But that would be the summit for this film. The following week, the film would lose more than half its theaters in New York, and the gross would also drop by more than 50%. By the end of October, the film was already gone from the Big Apple, even though it was doing better than E.T., which was still in 24 theaters in the area after 21 weeks. There would be a few more playdates in smaller suburban and rural markets, but nothing big enough to warrant any further mention, especially since grosses weren't being reported anymore. The Concrete Jungle would end its run with about $5 million in box office. Then there was Heartaches, probably the most out-of-left-field movie a company with a reputation for horror films and women-in-prison films could release. Annie Potts plays Bonnie, a young newlywed who has become pregnant, but not by her husband, played by Robert Carradine. Afraid to tell him, she runs away, hopping on the first bus out of town. On the bus, she meets Margot Kidder's Rita, a free spirit returning home from a trip to Montreal, who is beholden to no one. Bonnie ends up moving in with Rita, and the pair discover they might have more in common with each other than it might appear. Although some parts of the movie were shot in Atlanta to lend authenticity to the story, the vast majority of the $4 million Canadian production would be shot in Toronto. And MPM would also do something different with the release of this film on November 19th, doing something they hadn't done before opening the film on four screens in Los Angeles, three in New York City, and one in Chicago, and letting good reviews from the likes of Roger Ebert, Rex Reed, and Judy Stone from the San Francisco Chronicle be the driving force. And it sort of worked. Hardix would gross an okay $45,000, and it would only lose one of those screens after three weeks, not gaining any kind of solid hold on filmgoers the way a My Dinner with Andre had been doing all year across the country, but no hard drops either. But with the glut of legitimate award contenders like Gandhi, Sophie's Choice, Tootsie and the Verdict starting to open and expand in the final two weeks of the year, it would push a smaller movie like Heartaches out of theaters. By Christmas Day, with no awards buds surrounding it, Heartaches was down to just a single playdate in Los Angeles, where it would gross just $1,000 for an entire week. The film would be gone from theaters before the end of the year, with barely $100,000 in ticket sales. The first MPM movie for 1983, Mausoleum, would start to make its way around theaters in February. Susan Walker, a 10-year-old girl mourning the death of her mother, becomes possessed by a demon who has been preying upon her female ancestors for centuries after coming across a supernatural force killing a vagrant in her family's mausoleum. 
20 years later, as she is about to receive her family inheritance, the demon inside Susan starts to take over, both mentally and physically. Filmed in Los Angeles during February and March of 1981, Mausoleum featured 70s film icon Marjo Gortner and Bobby Breesey, who would become a beloved scream queen thanks to her role here. The film would become partially notorious for being the first film bankrolled by Michael Franzese, a 30-year-old capo in the Colombo crime family known as the Yuppie Don, who was trying to establish some legitimate businesses when it came time to leave the family. A few weeks after the film completed shooting, the first lawsuit involving the film was filed. Morton Green, who owned the rights to the story, sued the producers for $60,000, which he said he was supposed to be paid for directing the film in exchange for transferring the story rights to the producers, plus $1 million in punitive damages. If the suit was ever settled or went to trial, I cannot find out how it all came out. Post-production lasted through most of the rest of 1981, but even after the film was completed, it would sit around for another year before MPM would pick up the theatrical distribution rights. On February 18, 1983, Mausoleum would open on three screens in Birmingham, Alabama, and on two screens in Nashville. Two weeks later, on March 14th, the two screens in Nashville were gone, as was one of the screens in Birmingham, with those prints shipped off to Memphis, while adding another screen in Clarksdale, Mississippi, followed by new playdates in Charlotte and Greensboro, North Carolina, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on the 11th. The 18th would see new shows in Biloxi, Mississippi, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Shreveport, Louisiana on the 25th. But during all those weeks, MPM never reported grosses. How well was the film doing, especially when there was another movie, Tom McLaughlin's One Dark Night, in the market that featured the storyline of three teenagers who are sent to spend the night in a mausoleum as part of a high school initiation? We wouldn't know until the first week of May, after MPM released Mausoleum in 52 theaters and drive-ins in the greater Los Angeles area. While MPM still hadn't released grosses for the film, Variety was tracking 26 of those 52 theaters, and the opening would be a fair $143,000. On a per-screen average, this was just $5 a screen less than the far more heavily advertised Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, Susan Strandon vampire film The Hunger, which had also opened the same day. And we'd see a cumulative gross of $242,600. On May 6th, Mausoleum would lose more than half of its Los Angeles screens, but it would move into the New York metro area region with an 86-screen push. But Variety only reported for grosses on one of those theaters in New York, and only four of them in Los Angeles. And between those five theaters, the gross was an anemic $27,500 with $17,000 of that coming from the Rivoli in New York City's Times Square. And the film would continue to play throughout the remainder of the summer in markets like Minneapolis and Kansas City. A 1987 book by Suzanne Donahue, American Film Distribution, The Changing Marketplace, says that the film's final gross was $1.34 million. But if it didn't gross more than $400,000 between the two biggest markets in America, I honestly could not see any path towards $1.34 million, but I guess it's possible? MPM's next release would also be, surprise, another Italian horror film. 
Directed by Lucio Fulci in 1979, The Gates of Hell featured Greek-American actor Christopher George as a reporter who travels to a small New England town with a young psychic to help close the gates of hell, which have opened up when a priest hangs himself in the church's cemetery before the start of All Saints' Day. Should they fail, the dead from all over the world will rise up from their graves and kill the living. The Gates of Hell would be the first of Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy, along with the Beyond and the House by the Cemetery. Although none of those films have any of the same cast or really share any major thematic elements that would weave them together in any meaningful way. Knowing that they'd never get an MPA rating for a Fulci movie other than an X, MPM would send The Gates of Hell out to theaters unrated, with a warning on the posters and ads that the film contained, quote, scenes which may be considered shocking, unquote, and that no one under 17 would be admitted. The film would open in 41 theaters in Southern California, from Ventura to Palm Beach to Escondido, as well as two screens in Tucson, Arizona. Variety only tracked 13 of those screens, which grossed an impressive $140,000, which would be $50,000 more than a movie called Losing It, starring Shelley Long from Cheers, which had been on TV for one season but not yet had become a ratings juggernaut, and an up-and-coming actor named Tom Cruise, who had made an impressive acting debut two years earlier in Taps, and Losing It was playing on 50% more screens than The Gates of Hell. Two weeks later, April 22nd, the film would open in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Honolulu, followed by Biloxi, Mississippi, and Lafayette and Shreveport, Louisiana, and Pensacola, Florida on the 29th, and St. Louis and Dayton, Ohio would come aboard on May 13th. The next big break would be May 20th, when the Gates of Hell opened on 72 screens in the New York City metro area, where it would scare up $495,000 worth of ticket sales, fifth best in the region that weekend, and the second best new opener behind the cheesy Charles Band 3D movie Space Hunter. But that would be a small victory, as with the opening of The Return of the Jedi on the 25th, the Gates of Hell would lose nearly half of its screens, and see its gross drop to $428,000. By June 3rd, the film would completely disappear from the Big Apple, because all those prints would go to other markets. In Cleveland, it would earn $290,000 from 21 theaters and drive-ins, and another $100,000 from seven screens in Boston. The film would play a few more months in smaller markets like Appleton and Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Bangor, Maine, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota throughout the rest of the summer, and finish up its theatrical run with a $1.9 million in ticket sales. In some areas, Mausoleum and the Gates of Hell would become a drive-in double feature as early as April 29th, although it appears that all of the grosses for both films would be attributed to the Gates of Hell. Now, some online sources will tell you about a Cure Dulay film called Brainwaves that was allegedly released in August 1983. No specific date of release, but as I was doing my research, I could find no listing for a film with this title in any market covered by Variety in 1982 or 1983. And I couldn't find a single ad for a film with this title in any market in either year. Nor could I find any review for a film with this title, or for any movie for its star, or for its director, Uli Lomel, during 1982 or 1983. 
But there is an Embassy Home Entertainment VHS tape for the film dated 1983 that does show a 1982 copyright for the film for MPM. So, there's that. MPM would release yet another Italian-made zombie movie from 1980 in September of 1983. Originally called Virus in Italy, almost called Zombie 4 or Hell of the Living Dead in America, before MPM settled on Night of the Zombies. See if this plot sounds familiar. In New Guinea, a top-secret experiment goes awry, and mutation chemicals are accidentally released, turning scientists and workers into zombies. A famous French journalist and her cameraman are assigned to disclose to the world what is happening. Meanwhile, four soldiers are assigned to a secret mission in the same region. When the soldiers and the journalists meet in the same area, they soon have to defend themselves against a zombie attack. With no one of note in America, and the tagline, There is no escape from the night of the zombies, MPM would open the film in Des Moines, Iowa, Jackson, Mississippi, and Memphis on Friday, September 16th, followed by a multi-screen release in and around Boston on the 23rd. And as always, MPM did not report grosses for the film for either week. On September 30th, the film would show up in Chicago. Variety would note the film would make $130,000 from 36 screens in Boston, Chicago, and New Orleans that week. But, more interestingly, at least to me, Variety's top 50 grossing films chart for the week would note a cumulative box office gross of $369,666. On October 14th, Night of the Zombies would open in 74 theaters in the greater New York City metro region. And, despite having no advertising in any of the local newspapers, it would have the highest gross of all the new openers in town and the third-best overall gross in the area with $550,000 in ticket sales. Behind Sean Connery's return to 007, Never Say Never Again, and The Big Chill. Still no numbers directly from MPM, but Variety would give us a new total national gross after four weeks, $945,666. And while the film would continue to add playdates in places like Baltimore and San Francisco throughout late October and early November, Night of the Zombies would have staying power in New York City. Some theaters in the Big Apple would continue to play the film in December, which is a surprise considering most horror films in the early 80s were in and out of major urban markets in a matter of three weeks. And after eight weeks, the film would unofficially break the million-dollar gross mark. And then, like the Energizer Bunny, it just kept going and going and going. During late winter, it would mostly be relegated to being the B or even C title in double and triple features at drive-ins and dollar houses, but every once in a while it would pop up again in a new metropolitan area. As late as May 1984, more than eight months after the first theatrical playdates, Night of the Zombies would open first run on two screens in Miami. Overall, the film would gross a fairly decent $1.5 million from the areas and theaters Variety was tracking, which is not too shabby for a cheap acquisition of a three-year-old Italian movie. Our next movie is another phantom MPM release of an Uli Lomel film. The Devonsville Terror was a horror film shot in rural Wisconsin featuring Donald Pleasance and Robert Walker that MPM bought the theatrical rights to but never actually released in the theaters. It supposedly opened in theaters in October 1983, according to the IMDb, but outside of a handful of playdates in England earlier in the year, 
The first time I can find the movie playing anywhere in America is on late night television beginning Friday, May 18, 1984, in cities like Twin Falls, Idaho, Sioux City, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Our next actual MPM theatrical release is another Italian-made Women in Prison movie. Some today might know the film as one of Laura Gemser's Black Emanuel movies, Emanuel Reports from a Women's Prison, but when it was released into American theaters starting March 16, 1984 in cities like Lafayette, Louisiana and McAllen, Texas, it would be known as Caged Women. When the film opened in Corpus Christi the following week, the local newspaper's summary of the film read just, You got it. Women in Cages. On April 20th, Caged Women would open on 23 screens in Chicago, where it would gross a lackluster $90,000. More than one local critic would wonder why someone would release a movie like this in Chicago on Easter weekend. But that didn't seem to stop people from going to see the fourth chapter of the Friday the 13th series in its second weekend, which grossed nearly triple that amount on one less screen. The following week, it would open in nearly 40 screens in the New York City metro area, but only one theater in Manhattan, the RKO Tivoli Twin, was being tracked by Variety, and the film would gross a respectable $25,000. The movie would continue to open in cities like Boston, Baltimore, Detroit, and Philadelphia throughout May, Atlanta, Kansas City, Miami, and Pittsburgh during June, Fort Worth and Tucson in July, but by August, it would be mostly playing at dollar houses or Saturday midnight shows. Finally, the Friday after Thanksgiving, November 30th, Cage Women would arrive in the Los Angeles metro area, but only on four screens. One, the State Theater, was a once beautiful cinema palace in downtown that sat more than 2,400 people before falling into a state of disrepair during the urban blight era of the 1970s. Another, the park, was across the street from MacArthur Park and would be closed two years later because of the crime problems in the area at the time. The other two theaters playing it were drive-ins, which would be the preferred way to see a movie like Cage Women, except those drive-ins were in Palm Springs and Santa Barbara, more than 90 minutes away. There were more than 35 drive-ins in the Los Angeles County area alone in November of 1984, with more than 50 screens, but not one could be bothered to book it, not even as a B-picture for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which have been re-released on the same day, or A Nightmare on Elm Street, or, or Chud, or Missing in Action, or The Terminator. Even Wes Craven's 10-year-old The Last House on the Left had several drive-in playdates that weekend in Los Angeles, often as the C title in triple features supporting toy soldiers and terror in the aisles. But by then, MPM had pretty much moved on to our next feature, which was released in June. Cage Women would finish up with around a million dollars in ticket sales, according to Variety. That other film was yet another women in prison movie, but this time, it not only had a recognizable name actor at the top of the bill, she was an Oscar-nominated actress in one of our most acclaimed and celebrated movies of the 1970s. By 1983, Linda Blair's career had nosedived from the high of The Exorcist, having spent the following years making mostly forgettable TV movies and exploitation films like Roller Boogie and Hell Knight, and another Women in Prison movie shot in 1982, Chained Heat. Blair was originally the first choice to play Brenda, a high school student turned vigilante who seeks revenge on a group of violent hooligans who raped her handicapped sister and killed her best friend. But she turned down the role because she had just made another Women in Prison movie, and 
and though at that point, Chained Heat hadn't been released yet. Plus, she was not happy that the other film turned out much different than she anticipated. And since this new film was going to be produced by the same people as the other film, she did not trust their intentions. Instead, former Runaways lead singer Cherry Curry, who had turned to acting after the breakup of her band, would be cast in the lead. Shortly before production began on the film, three things happened. First, Billy Fine, the producer of Chain Heat, who had helped to write the story for Savage Streets, left the project. Two, Tom DeSimone, the director of such films as Hell Night and The Concrete Jungle, would be replaced by Danny Steinman, whose only previous feature directing credit was the little scene, pun somewhat intended, 1980 Barbara Bach horror film The Unseen. Some rumors have it that Blair and DeSimone did not get along during the making of Hell Night. And three, Chain Heat had become a minor hit, and Linda Blair had real gross profit participation points as part of her contract to accepting that film, so she could make another movie which might hopefully show off a different side of her acting abilities, unseen since the days of The Exorcist. When Blair inquired if the part was still available, Cherry Curry would get a quick payout, and shooting on the $2 million film would begin in Los Angeles, with their star in John Vernon, the dean of Farber College in Animal House, as their only other name actor, on August 17, 1983. But there would be some problems with the production, which would have to stop and start a number of times before filming was finally completed on February 14, 1984. But the production had been smart enough to do whatever editing and other post-production work could be completed during the shutdowns, and in early June, the film would get an X rating from the MPAA. The filmmakers would appeal the rating and they would win. The film would be sent out to theaters with an R rating, without a single added cut. Savage Streets would first open in Omaha, Nebraska and Springfield, Missouri on June 29th, before hitting 48 theaters in and around Detroit on July 6th. MPM didn't report grosses for either week, but they did take out an ad in the July 18, 1984 issue of Variety, their first and only trade ad, to gloat that in its first 10 days in southern Michigan, the film had grossed $543,602. On July 13th, the film would add playdates in Dayton, Ohio and Indianapolis, and by the end of July, the film would be completely out of theaters, but that wouldn't be the end of the story. On October 5th, Savage Streets would open at 87 theaters in the greater New York City metro area and would bring in $723,000 in its first three days. The following week, the film would lose 36% of its screens in the Big Apple and 52% of its opening weekend gross. But still, that's more than $1.1 million from just one territory in 10 days. There are major studio films playing in New York City in October of 2023 wishing they grossed that much in their first 10 days. And ticket prices in Manhattan are 350% higher today than the $5 adult evening ticket price of October 1984. By mid-November, the film had completely moved on from the largest movie market in the country, replacing them with new playdates in Baltimore and Boston on November 23rd, the Friday before Thanksgiving. By Christmas, the film was out of theaters again, and the only talk about it in newspapers or television were regular appearances on critics' worst films of the year lists. The next push for the film would be in late January, when it would arrive in Atlanta on the 25th, before disappearing again two weeks later. As the film's video distributor, Vestron Video, was preparing to release Savage Streets on video cassette in late May, they would work with the distribution team to give the film one final theatrical push 
sending it out to 45 theaters in Los Angeles on May 10th with new key art that seemed to hide the fact that it was a female empowerment movie of sorts. Once again, grosses were not reported on the film, and Variety only tracked 10 of the 45 theaters playing the film, where they reported $34,500 worth of ticket sales. The final time Variety reported numbers on the film, Savage Streets had earned about $1.73 million. MPM's penultimate release was yet another Italian-made horror film, which MPM would entitle Revenge of the Dead. In the film, a young journalist named Stefano buys a used typewriter and notices some text is still readable on the ribbon. Through the used ribbon, he is able to reconstruct the story of a scientist, Paolo Zetter, who in the 1950s discovered that some types of terrain have the power to revive the dead that are buried in them. Stefano's investigations bring him in contact with a group of renegade scientists that are still making experiments to prove Zetter's theories. Starring Gabriel Lavia as Stefano and the luscious Anne Canavas as the beautiful, mysterious woman he meets on the way, Revenge of the Dead would open in Johnson City and Kingsport, Tennessee on January 25, 1985. And as usual, MPM did not report any grosses for the film. But there would be, as usual, a slow trickle of playdates in the second and third tier markets. Columbus, Georgia and Knoxville, Tennessee on February 1st, Philadelphia on February 8th, Jackson, Mississippi on February 22nd. And by the end of April, Revenge of the Dead had already been released on VHS. But the theatrical bookings continued. Wichita, Kansas on May 10th. Dayton, Ohio and Pensacola, Florida on June 28th. Buffalo, New York on September 6th. Miami on September 20th. And Atlanta on October 25th. But never in New York City, Los Angeles or Chicago, the three most important movie markets in America. We'd never get a clue as how well the film performed outside of it never opening on any of those three major markets. MPM's last stand would be another Laura Gemser Black Emanuel movie, known mostly around the world as Emanuel in Prison. MPM would release it in America as Women's Prison Massacre. This time around, four escaped male convicts seize control of a women's prison and proceed to terrorize the inmates one of them who was reporter Manuel, incarcerated on trumped-up charges. Women's Prison Massacre would open at two theaters in Atlanta and one in Macon, Georgia on Friday, April 26, 1985. And, as usual, MPM did not report any grosses. The film would add one screen in Columbia, South Carolina on May 17th and one in Birmingham, Alabama on June 7th, where it would play all the way to the end of August. On August 30th, Women's Prison Massacre would add playdates in Baltimore and Pittsburgh, and on September 27th, there would be new shows in Austin and Oklahoma City. And after that, there'd be nothing new until Miami on January 17, 1986, and Philadelphia on January 31st. Next up, Detroit on April 25th, then Oceanside, California on June 6th. By the 4th of July, 1986, more than a year after opening in Atlanta, the film was now opening as the B or C title in cities like Cincinnati and Kansas City. The film wouldn't arrive in New York City until September 26th or in Los Angeles until December 5th. But there'd be no ads in the newspaper and no reported grosses, even from Variety. The last reported numbers for the film would be just before New York City in mid-September, 
Women's Prison Massacre had made $876,331 from the theater's variety it was tracking. But as I was compiling all this, I noticed on the play dates for Savage Streets and Women's Prison Massacre after April 1985 that other companies were releasing these films. Savage Streets was now being released by a company called Entermark, while Women's Prison Massacre was being distributed by a company called Unistar. And that's literally the end of the story. MPM was so used to flying under the radar that even their collapse as a distributor went unnoticed and unannounced. But for a while, their particular brand of distribution showed that the old AIP ways could still work a generation later. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies we covered this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.